This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, week number 10. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, and as we turn there, I want you to think of the broad movements in biblical interpretation that have taken place in the church of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years. By the second and third century, a method of biblical interpretation had settled in among the preachers and teachers and theologians of the church. They prized what we call allegorical interpretations. That is, they looked at every detail they could find in the text and they began to try with a great deal of imagination and mental flexibility, come up with some kind of correspondence to their congregations or their readers' lives. And there's amazing, uh, just volumes of writing and that's just what survived during the second and third century of making what we would now consider fanciful interpretations of what the scripture has to say in any given text. Everything had a meaning, every city, every verb, every, every number, uh, everything had a meaning that you couldn't easily see. By the Middle Ages, that form of interpretation had given way to what we call scholasticism, which was a, a very uh, uh, intensive and uh, much more literal way to look at everything in the text that ended up, uh, it wasn't any less voluminous, there was plenty to say about every text, but we began to abandon the, uh, the fanciful and imaginative interpretations of Scripture. Its progeny was what we consider today a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of Scripture, uh, which we're all comfortable with in the 20th, 21st century, but uh, unfortunately has left us uh, handicapped in many ways at approaching a text with the kind of, uh, of thought, with the, uh, uh, the, the, the pondering of a text, and finding um, the depth of implication in any given text. Uh, we're pretty quick to go into a text, look at it, say, this is what it means, here we go. Uh, it's got one interpretation, and it may have many applications, but uh, we just look for that simple interpretation, and then we, we seek to preach the implications of the text. Proverbs chapter 2 reminds us that um, while I believe historical, grammatical, literary interpretation of a given text is, is the right way to do it, it gives us something objective to aim at, uh, we can't think that uh, interpretation is going to happen with the kind of uh, quick or easy reading of the text that so many in our day bring to Bible reading and Bible study. Look at verse 1, Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, that sounds pretty uh, familiar to us. We hear them, we embrace them, we, uh, we remember them. Then he goes another level deep, deeper. He goes another level into my active listening. He says, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. And now here comes the effort. If you call out for insight, and you cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. That's not normally how we read the Bible. As a matter of fact, there are some that's all they do is quickly read through the verses and paragraphs of Scripture. Unfortunately, we lose the many facets of the things that God has said, particularly about himself, when he doesn't just present us with uh, prose and simple descriptions of who he is, but he gives us a, a, a kind of breadth and depth of knowledge in, in specifically the analogies that he allows the authors, the prophets, and apostles of Scripture to utilize. When he is called by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a shield or a fire 
or when Christ is called a door or the bread or the vine. Uh, those are things that we would do well to ponder, to slow down, to, to dig deeply into. Now, tonight what I want to do is something that's not traditionally done in most theology propers, and that is to look at a few of the poetic, illustrative, their illustrations, analogies, which show me some depiction of God that is supposed to lead my heart, my mind, to draw similarities or parallels. That's what an analogy is. Something used by way of comparison to show me similarities. Unfortunately, when we don't ponder them and slow down and take the time to look at what those interpretive implications are, we miss a lot of what God had in mind for us as he wants us to, as this text says, look for those things as for silver and search for them as for hidden treasure. Because when we do that and when we expend that kind of effort, he says, then you will find or understand rather the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So tonight we've only got time for four, but I want to go to the Psalter, to the Psalms, and I want to start with a familiar Psalm, Psalm 23, and we'll take some time to hopefully at a slower pace than we might read the 23rd Psalm or the 31st Psalm, begin to take some time to think through the implications of what God had in mind when he led the prophets to bring to us illustrative analogies of his role and his position and his activity and his character as it relates to our lives. So before we get into this, let us pray together that God would give us a, uh, an edifying and instructive night together. Pray with me, please. God, you are a great God. You are uh, exalted above everything, and by that I mean you are, are greater than anything we could think of, any pleasure, any intelligence, any complexity. You are, uh, you are greater and, and you are transcendent. You are above those things. And it would be good for us, God, to spend more effort, more time, particularly when we get to these poetic expressions in the Psalter, lyrics of songs that were written, the creative side of, of, your, uh, of your spirit expressing in poetic language the character of your nature, of your heart, of your actions. And God, I pray that we would, as Proverbs 2 says, dig a little deeper, spend time putting ourselves in the position of those who would experience those things because some of these analogies, like the first one we'll look at here, are, are so far removed from our daily life in suburbia in the 21st century. So God, help us. Let us get back in time and begin to understand what a rich analogy this first one is and all, all four of these tonight. And may it be a, a primer for us that would teach us and, and, and guide us and give us the tools that we need to stop and ponder and dig deep every time we see something in Scripture that would make us pause, an analogy, a, uh, an illustration, an appellation that doesn't match with some, uh, 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 some expectation of deity. And Christ calls himself the door when he's said that, that God is, is the, the vine dresser. God, help us to pause to dig, to think, and may your spirit help us with understanding, that this might enrich our understanding of you, our knowledge of you, that it may help us to live more appropriately in light of who you are, reflecting an accurate knowledge of who you are. So God, guide us and govern this time tonight. Thank you so much for this psalm that's been read and poetically illustrated in so many ways in books and pictures and in songs in our day, and I pray that we would go away with a better, better understanding, a deeper understanding, more intimate and personal understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Psalm 23. Psalm 23. David writes, who of course you remember grew up as a shepherd, he says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Number one on your outline. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. If you look from the beginning of scripture to the very end, of course the scripture was initially given in an, 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 an agrarian society where people were farmers and, and, and sheep herders and all these uh, outdoor, very foreign activities to us, you can't avoid the picture of God representing himself and his leadership, either by proxy through humans or as God in a theocracy. He presents himself to his people as shepherds. I mean, as a shepherd, rather. And his leaders as shepherds. As a matter of fact, to call your pastoral staff Pastor Pete or Pastor Dale or Pastor Mike uh, you're using a, a shepherd analogy. That's what pastor means. Pastoral, outdoors, the hills, the valleys, the streams, and, and, and someone who is, uh, is guiding a flock, a flock of sheep. It is, um, it is ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the scripture. The shepherd, above all other things, is called to be a provider. A provider. You can't feed yourself. You certainly can't survive for very long without the provision of the shepherd. And God would have us try to, even in a different culture in a different time from the ends of the earth, put ourselves back in that day and begin to recognize that as a person would provide provision and, and, and guide into fruitful and, and, and um, uh, nutritious uh, pasture for sheep, that, that God is that for us. Keep your finger here and turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17, a, a passage that would be good for us to, uh, to memorize, to recite often. When it comes to God and his provision in your life, it is, it is complete, it is whole life, it is everything, it is universal. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Of course, Paul is preaching to the university professors of Athens in a place called the Areopagus formerly known as Mars Hill. And he says, he is the Lord, he's the boss, he's the king of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's a great statement. It's a whole life statement. It's a universal statement. You don't have anything without the provision of God. A shepherd gets close to the picture of sheep who would not survive for a day without a shepherd, you know, in an unpenned environment that is hostile to sheep. And the Bible says that your life, your very life, is held together by the shepherd. He gives provision to your life. And it's good for us, whether you are in the habit of praying before you sleep with your children or before a meal around the kitchen table, to remember this verse because without God, we, we have nothing. And the Bible says you need to see him as that, as a provider. Secondly, we need to see God as our, as our guide. And that's where this text goes. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me, verse 3 says, in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The scripture presents to us God as a, uh, as a guide for us, a providential guide who takes us down the path of our lives. And if I hadn't turned you from Acts 17, I would show you that God has said to us, you remember the text perhaps, that he has placed you in the exact time, in the exact geographical place, and he's put you there providentially. He is sovereign over all things so that we might be people that understand that God is driving us to him, himself. His spirit in our lives, and if you're taking notes, jot down John 16, is to be the provision for us that isn't present in the bodily presence of Christ himself. When Christ left, he said, I'm going to endow you with the spirit in your life who is going to guide and direct you into everything that I can't guide you into when I'm not here. 
And cultivating that relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is critical. In Psalm 23, it goes on to say, if you look down into verse number four, it says, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. It's an interesting statement because the rod was used to, uh, to smack the, the sheep. To, to spank them, to, to in, inflict pain to bring them back. And the long staff was used to uh, take a wandering sheep and bring them back. The discipline of God in our lives is the guidance of God, whether it's through the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the discipline of Hebrews 11, to bring us back in line with the Holy Spirit. He's our provider. He is our guide. Number three, he is our protector. Psalm 23 Verse number four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the natural enemy of the sheep was just about every animal in the ancient world, whether they be wolves, which was the one that is usually discussed, or as David talked about lions or bears, he has to protect the sheep from the natural enemies. One more passage before we leave this image of the shepherd. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 might be helpful to remind us of the, uh, the provision, I'm sorry, the protection of the shepherd. There is right now, if you are a Christian that is, a um, host of demonic spirits that want to destroy you. Not for your sake. Um, you're irrelevant for the most part in their strategy, but for the sake of God, just like if you really wanted to cause and inflict pain on someone, to target their children would be a, an insidious, insidiously perfect strategy, and so it is with, uh, with demonic spirits. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Second Thessalonians. Second Thess 3, verse 1, just to consider the spiritual battle that we're in. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The juxtaposition in verse 2 of individuals, wicked men, wicked and evil men, and the evil one is telling. Just like when Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I know the people in our lives that cause us grief. And those that would want to undo us, uh, the Bible tries to build this connection for us in our minds that these are all spiritually charged. He says in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And so it was in the first century that Paul was constantly trying to make the connection between spiritual safety whether it was cloaked in human opposition or for Paul it was health issues, the thorn in the flesh, the attachment to the spiritual enemies that want to undo him are always in the forefront of the apostle's mind. If you want to read more on this, I recommend this book to you. There are many about the analogy of the shepherd, but this one is, uh, is a fantastic little book. I be believe it's still in print. I think it's still in print called Insights from Psalm 23, Trusting the Shepherd by Haddon Robinson. It couldn't be more than 100 pages. It's a, it's a very small, skinny little book. But what a great bedside reader just to have on your nightstand and to read a page or two before you go to sleep to consider the uh, agrarian connections, the analogy of the shepherd and our God. Number two, God is our rock. Turn to Psalm 31, another psalm of David. Verse number one, Psalm 31, he says, In you, O Yahweh, I've taken refuge. Let me not be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge. A strong fortress, and these often go together, rock and fortress, to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Yahweh, the God of truth. Rock is used 20 times in the Psalms to analogize God. 
Though it's hard to number how many times shepherd analogizes God, just in the Psalter alone, 20 times we have the connection that God is our rock. A rock in the ancient world is uh, it's indispensable. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, it is like you're building your house on a, on a rock if you do what I say. It is the immovable, it is the, uh, it is the, the security of something that cannot be shaken, it cannot be moved. And in an analogy throughout the Psalms, it's always one of, of, not always, but often one of protection and security. When it comes to God describing himself as some inanimate object like a rock, the picture is one of, of strength, one of security. Actually, this word is sometimes translated mountain. And the picture here of, uh, of Petra, if you've been to the Middle East and Jordan and traveled through these lands and seen this. It's a phenomenal experience, but there was nothing more secure, nothing that would give people a greater sense of security than having your fortress built literally into the rock. And so it was that even the prophets were sent to Edom to say that their confidence was misplaced, that the rock that they should be trusting in is not the rocks of their fortresses, but the rock of the Almighty God. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. I'm not sure what your challenge is in terms of, of fear or insecurity, but Christians have absolutely zero excuse for being anxious, fearful, or insecure. When you fear something, you empower that thing. You, you give yourself in submission to its position in your life. And the Bible says even if it's a group of thugs that want to take your life, that's not the one you should fear. You should fear him who can uh, not only kill your body but cast your soul into hell. And once you make peace with the only one you should fear, then there is no one else to fear in, in the universe. And that's the picture in Romans chapter 8. Familiar words, but they're good to read periodically. Look at verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, these are all indicative, emphatic statements, right? Then he's also justified them, and if he's justified them, he's also glorified them. It's what we call a prophetic perfect. It's in a completed sense grammatically, but it hadn't happened yet. You're not glorified yet. You haven't received your inheritance. You're not in the presence of God, but from God's perspective, it's as though it's a done deal because nothing can thwart the Almighty, as Isaiah 14 says. No purpose of his can be thwarted. Verse 31, if that's the case, if God is going to pluck you from hell and he's going to put you in his family, and if he's going to bring you into glory, then verse 31 says, what are we going to say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I know, you know, Paul can throw up his hand and say, there's plenty of people in my life, just read the book of Acts. But in reality, they're nothing compared to God accomplishing his purpose through, through Paul. Verse 32, if he didn't spare his own son, if the perfect one was slaughtered and murdered for you, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, all things that matter, all things that get us to the conclusion of our inheritance? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, there's plenty, but none that matter. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is the one who will judge the world. The problem is, for us, not a problem, it's a relief. He's no longer the one who condemns. He's died. More than that, he was raised to life and he's at the right hand of God and he's now not our enemy, he's now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, divorce, cancer, right? I mean, you, you pick whatever modern thing causes you anxiety or fear. For it is written, for your sake, and it's true, there's lots pitted against us. We face death all day long, and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
our lives are hidden in God. I'm thinking Colossians 3. We are in the rock. We are secure in him. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, add yourself to that list because I know a lot of people say, well, I, I can really mess things up. Trust me, in the provision of God and all that he's done for you with complete and perfect knowledge, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's picture for that, for us to resonate and and marinate in our minds is the picture of a huge rock, sometimes translated mountain, in which we found shelter and protection, security. Hopefully you kept your finger in Psalm 31. Turn back there if you would. Psalm 31. Look at the words that surround this. The appellations, we call them, the the requests. Verse 1, let's look at it again. We'll circle a couple of words. Oh, Yahweh, I've taken refuge, he says, in you, O Lord. Let me never be put to shame. Now, here's how the request works out in the psalmist's cry, the song. He says, deliver me. There's one. Deliver me. And deliver me in your righteousness. You're a good God. You're a just God. Deliver me. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly. Here's another one. To my rescue. Rescue me. Be my, be, be my rock of refuge. Be a strong fortress to me. Save me. There's a third one. Deliver me, rescue me, save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, here's some more. He said, lead me and, and guide me. Here's another one. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me. Deliver me, rescue me, save me. Lead me, guide me, free me. Redeem me. O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols, but I trust in Yahweh. I will be glad and I will rejoice in your love, even though he's the target of, of, of his enemy's vitriol. He says, for you saw my affliction and you knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but you have set my feet in a spacious place. And I'm not sure it's quite there yet. This is a bit of a poetic perfect, not a prophetic perfect, but he's looking forward to that. Be merciful to me, O Lord, verse 9, for I'm in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. Drop down to verse 13, for I hear the slander of many, and there's terror on every side. They conspire against me, and they plot to take my life. But here's what you do with the rock. You trust in your fortress. I trust in you. O Lord, I say, you are my God. In times My times, my life, my history, my chronology, it's in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant and save me. There's the theme again in your unfailing love. Letter B, this is all about deliverance, deliverance. And unfortunately, unfortunately, in the quick reading of our New Testaments, we only seem with one facet to interpret the concept of salvation. But salvation, as I like to say, has a capital S in some context, and in many contexts, it has a small s, because the deliverance I need is not just the deliverance from the uh, wrath of God, which I understand overshadows all the other ones, but there are a lot of small s's we'd like deliverance from too, right? Things that would otherwise cause us fear, and it's important for us to recognize that the analogy that God gives us through inspiration in the prophet's pen is that we should see him as as our rock as our deliverer in times of trouble. When Hezekiah, I think I wrote this recently in the bulletin, in my little bulletin blurb, he was a godly man, but at the end of his life, because he had all the resources available to him, when he was sick, he went to the physicians, and unfortunately, the Bible says he trusted, and here's the implication, only in the physicians to heal him. And unfortunately, because of the misplaced trust that he had, which was evident not only in his seeking the physicians and trusting in them exclusively, but relying on foreign armies instead of relying on God, God had rejected him. In Second Chronicles 16, the prophet says, you've, uh, you've blown it. Sometimes we think God's provision in our lives are all the things around us, the medications and the doctors and and all the modern conveniences. 
The trick for us in a prosperous place is to make sure that in our hearts, God is our deliverer. And he may use mechanisms that seem very mundane and common. But if you're going to be healed from a cold, or if you're going to survive an economic downturn, your deliverer doesn't come from good financial advice or the prescriptions from the pharmacy. The Bible says your deliverance comes from God. He gives you life and breath and everything else, not just initially, but in every crisis that you face. God is your deliverer. Look at verse 17. He says, let me not be put to shame. This is Psalm 31, 17, O Lord, for I have cried out to you, but let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced. I hope you're bold enough to pray those kinds of prayers. They're what we call in the Psalms imprecatory psalms. They're psalms where the psalmist turns his heart not just toward God for salvation, but he asks God now to sick them, (laughs) get them, solve the problem for me. In the earthly injustice, I would like you to solve the problem. Not unlike Jesus' model prayer to the disciples when he says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, evildoers will be cast into the lake of fire. The prayer that Jesus tells us to pray, of course, though surrounded and basked in grace and hopefully the conversion of the wicked, he's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want that to happen. But there are times in our lives with great injustice that we pray the prayers of the rock who will not only defend us, but lastly, let her see, he will vindicate us. He will fix the injustice. He will take those who do wrong against us and against the people of God, against the innocent and against the weak, and we pray that God will will rise up against them. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced. For with pride, verse 18, here's why it's just and right, and contempt, they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which, which you've stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Well, that kindness and that, that, that goodness is expressed toward enemies in retribution. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them in the intrigues of men. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise Yahweh, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Yahweh preserves the faithful. Now here's the other side, the vindication side. But the proud, he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all of you who hope in the rock, right? In the Lord, which began with a statement that he is a rock and a fortress. God is your vindicator. And while your enemy may come hungry and you're commanded in new covenant teaching to feed him, our concern is that evil will stop. And so it is at times in the injustice that we experience, we pray to our deliverer and our vindicator. Thirdly, oh, I'm sorry, a statement about this. This was written from the perspective of trying to aid those who want to counsel other people, but it doesn't read like a counseling book. There's some good theology in this book. When people are big and God is small. Anybody read that one yet? This might be helpful for you. Welch wrote a book that circulated for some time called Blame It on the Brain. Anybody read that one? No? That's a pretty good one. When people are big and God is small. Be a good read for you. That one's a little thicker than the first one I suggested. Number three, the Lord is my light. I didn't do all the numbers and the comparisons. And while the concept of pastoral imagery and pastors and shepherds run thick through the scripture, I doubt there's an analogy that we find in scripture that is more ever present than the picture of light. God is light. Take a look at this from Psalm 27. Psalm 27. I'm just sticking with the Psalms here tonight, and this is just to hopefully whet your appetite for work you can do on your own. There are so many analogies of God in the Scripture, but here is a clear and forthright statement 
in verse 1, Psalm of David, Yahweh is my, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. That sounds like the rock again, the fortress. Whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of Yahweh, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and seek him in his temple. The picture though I think cross-pollinated with the idea of a rock or a fortress, brings us from not just one who protects and defends, but someone in this text who gives us because we ponder and ingest the perspective of Yahweh, particularly in the imagery in his temple, we get the proper perspective. And this is a rich analogy as it's tied to light throughout the scripture. There is something about sin that is aptly analogized with darkness. Men grope in darkness. Men love the darkness rather than light. There is something about darkness in the picture of sin that analogizes the problem of seeing things as they ought to be seen. The right and biblical true perspective, the perspective that corresponds with reality, is one that needs, and here's the analogy, God, light, to make it known. You've got to have God to get the perspective that makes everything be be perceived or seen in its proper light, in its proper perspective. This analogy of going to the temple throughout the uh, Psalms is one that always adjusts perspective. Let's go from David's Psalms to Asaph's Psalms. Go to Psalm 73 real quick. Psalm 73. This is a great psalm because the psalmist is showing that he has lost perspective. Psalm 73. He begins with a statement that he had learned and believed to be true. Unfortunately, he had lost perspective in his experience, and he needed God to be his light. Start in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Now that's the proposition, and he'd learned it from the time he was a kid. But, verse (laughs) 2, that's not what I was seeing. As for me, my feet had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and that doesn't make sense based on the proposition of verse 1. How is it that the wicked prosper? They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. It's just, it's this self-feeding problem. They clothe themselves with violence. They do what they want. They're calloused in their hearts. And it co- their calloused hearts comes, from their calloused hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they They threaten oppression. They're intimidating. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? How does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely, back to Asaph now, in in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain, it's for nothing that I washed my hands in innocent. I might as well have been like them. All day long, I am, I've been plagued and I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would betray your children. I mean, those are my thoughts. This is what I was wrestling with. But if I said that, it's, this would be a travesty. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Here's the key verse, bracket this one off, verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Because you don't get this perspective observing the injustice in the marketplace. The heroes on, on, on you know, ESPN or E! Channel, right? I didn't get it until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Oh yeah, they're out there speaking pridefully and they've got all the money now, but here's the deal. You've placed them, verse 18, on slippery ground. 
and you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and I was arrogant. I was like a brute beast before you. It was like an animal. It made no sense. Yet I'm always with you and you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you take me into glory. For whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. Don't get that from watching the, the, the activities of ancient Jerusalem. You've got to go into the sanctuary to get that perspective. And you destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God, even though he's oppressed every day, even though he's struggling I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The picture throughout the Psalms is a picture of someone needing the light that you get when you're in the presence of God. God becomes the illuminator, the one who gives us proper perspective. That perspective is not just one that we need when things are bad to see the end of the wicked. It is the skill that we need to live life that everyone else doesn't have. It's not always intuitive. It is a, a layer of God's illumination that we need to seek. Maybe the theme for our, our church would be a good verse to jot down. Psalm 43.3, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me into your holy mountain to the place where you dwell. How about these? Note takers, Psalm 19, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes. Here's the picture of, it, of being enlightened. That I may see wonderful things in your law. Proverbs 6, 23. These commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. Wisdom, the book of Proverbs. It's not foreign. It's not a foreign analogy. It's throughout. Wisdom, though, from the scripture is often a step removed, but it need not be in our thinking. God is light. God reveals light in revelation. That light enlightens us to live life appropriately and properly. Letter C. If you study the context of the analogy of light as I have and looked for its most consistent context, you'll find it is a context of someone lacking hope. We even saw that in Psalm 73. He was frustrated. He didn't get it. His heart was despairing. Even in Psalm 43, and I guess we should look at that. It is our church theme verse, right? You haven't seen the greater context of that verse lately. Let's look at that. Psalm 43. Light brings hope. Light, in the analogy of Scripture, God is light. He gives that sense of hope. I understand it's all interrelated to wisdom and perspective. But take a look at it. Vindicate me. Let's read the whole Psalm, O God, and plead my, case, my cause rather against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men, for you are my stronghold. There's another picture of our rock and fortress. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go on mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Okay, see, the context for this statement is, is a negative one, hopeless one. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy, my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O oh my God. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within, within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Note takers, jot down Psalm 4, verse 6 also, please. The picture of hope is one of the many applications of the analogy of light. Many are asking, who can show us any good? It's another dark picture of, of hopelessness. And 
The psalmist replies, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. Then he talks about being filled with joy, as though the grain and new wine abound. I will lie down in peace for you alone. God, allow us to dwell in safety. The Lord is my light. This one is such a broad topic, but this is a good little anthology. Several authors contribute to this. I think they're all present or past faculty members at Masters, but this is a helpful in some sections challenging little book on making sure we think biblically. We say it a lot around here on our pastoral team. That's the goal. We want to think and act biblically. That's why we chose for our theme verse for this church, light, the analogy of light. Fourthly, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that. This is also a common picture, almost 70 times in the Old Testament. There is some discussion or analogy of portion But a portion in scripture, nine times out of ten, has to do with a piece of property, an allotment, an inheritance, a place where you live, a territory, real estate. Several passage, passages analogize God as a portion. Matter of fact, we just read one, right? Psalm 73. Let me find that verse real quick. Verse 24. But anyway, that's not where I want to turn you. I'm sorry. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Let's go there. Just to get that forthright indicative statement that says, here's an analogy that we should understand. This is God. Psalm 119.57. Psalm 119, verse 57. You are my portion. Now again, I don't know how you visualize that, but if the most common usage of the word is a piece of real estate, that's an interesting statement, right? Let's put it down this way. Letter A, the first and foremost picture that is image that's supposed to come to mind is that God is, uh, is my provision. In an ancient land, you didn't live in an apartment in a bustling city, I guess unless you're Rahab. I mean, there were some, but 99% of the people needed land to, to survive. Land was your sustenance. Land was your provision. Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge, you are my portion in the land of the living. <laughs> All those that live need land, and you are my land. Now, I know that's a poetic statement throughout the Psalms, but it was a literal statement in Numbers chapter 18 and throughout the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. But there were 12 divisions of the nation of Israel, and there was one division that didn't get any land. Remember that? All the tribes got land. But then there was the tribe of Levi, and Levi, you, they said, you don't get land. And the words that are used specifically in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, is you don't get a, a, a kalek, a, a portion. That's the word. You don't get a portion. You don't get a land. You don't get to be a landowner because, here's the dramatic words to Aaron, because I am your portion, right? I'm your real estate. And I suppose, though for a different reason, maybe for economic survival, I mean, I mean that's a big deal in our day, right? Everybody wants to, to be a homeowner. And that's a, I mean, that's, that's, that's a goal for most people. It's as though God says to you, you can't own land because the security that you'll feel, the provision that you'll feel, the, 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 the equity that you'll build in your home, I just don't want you to see that as your equity. I want you to see me as your equity, and that would be a good word. He is your equity. He is your provision. He is for you what the stability of land would be for someone. He is your comfort. I picked a pretty good piece of real estate there, didn't I? Turn to this passage, once you jot that down, Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations means what? Good word or bad word? It's a bad word. A lament. This is something you do at a funeral. 
Only this was a funeral for thousands, not for one person. Thousands had died. Mothers had boiled their children in pots and fed them to their other children. It was the worst of times for Israel. And Jeremiah writes this little book that's kind of an appendage to to the book of Jeremiah. And he laments the, the travesty of what's happened. Now, this makes sense because they're all being hauled off. They're either being conscripted as slaves or they're being hauled off to Babylon like, like Daniel, Hananiah, and those guys. So we're not surprised to find this word in here, this, this word real estate, this word portion. Drop down to the middle of this chapter, uh, verse 18, Lamentations 3.18. Jeremiah writes, so I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped, to, hoped for from the Lord right? I mean, they had set up nice places to farm and to live. It was their security. It was their provision. It was where they hung out. It was their life. It's splendor, and it's gone. All that I had hoped for from the Lord. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of Yahweh's great love, we are not consumed. (laughs) We don't have our property anymore, but we're not dead yet. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, I don't have any property anymore, but I say to myself, underline this phrase, Yahweh is my portion. Therefore, I'll wait for him. And he'd have to wait for 70 years, right, till they got their property back. But God's going to be my property. For Yahweh is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation, small s, and I know they don't make that distinction in the grammar in your Bibles, but you know what I'm saying here, small s, to get their real estate back takes 70 years for the salvation of Yahweh. That's a great, great combination of words. Verse 24, I say to myself, Yahweh is my portion. He's my real estate. He's my equity. Therefore, I, therefore I will wait for him. Yahweh is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation, small s, of Yahweh. Well, if anything's taught in Scripture, it's that the world is not worth pinning your hopes on. And while the smallest salvation becomes pretty common in the Old Testament, it pretty much goes away in the New Testament. Because the eminence of the return of Christ was just around the corner. And those who had stuff, according to Paul in Corinth, they're supposed to act like they didn't have stuff. And to those who had an opportunity to store up wealth, they should store it up in heaven, not on earth. The point in the New Covenant when it comes to portion is that God needs to be seen as our future. Because everything here is reserved, according to 2 Peter 3, for God's coming judgment. And that brings our minds back to Psalm 73. You don't need to turn there, but he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. Now, that's a problem, right? (laughs) That's called death. But God is the strength of my heart. How can that be? And my portion for a few more years before I die. What does it say? My portion for ever. This is the picture in the new covenant. And with this, we'll close early. Turn to, to, turn to Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation chapter 21. Well, by the way, if you can do two things at once, you might want to jump down Psalm 17, verse 14. Just one great juxtaposition and contrast in the scripture here. He says, save me from such men, men of this world whose portion is in this life. They only care about stuff here. God is our collect, our collect, our portion. Our portion is our future, our inheritance. Real quickly in chapter 21 and then quickly to chapter 22. 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. See, now it's really not. Oh, I know he lives with us, in us, through Christ, or through the Spirit, rather, but it's not like it will be here when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and squishes the old place. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is a different arrangement. Now, over to chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of water, clear as crystal, flowing from the mountains. Is that what it says? No, from the throne of God. You need water. I know we don't think about it because we turn on a faucet, but you're going to come and settle somewhere. You better have a river running through it. And they say, well, there's a river, but it's not coming from where you'd think it would come from, snow-melted you know, mountains. It's, it's coming from, from God, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. See, that's the amazing thing. It's not now. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. There will not be a need for the light or the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The picture of the perfect arrangement is God living among his people perceived by God himself with his name, dare I say, tattooed to their foreheads. Revelation 22. If you haven't read this book yet, I've mentioned it enough times already, haven't I? I don't know what you're reading, but I'm not sure it's as important as a book like this. I mean, it may be. I'm not sure what you're reading. But I see some of the magazines every now and then that you're reading. I'm sure this would be better than any magazine you could buy. Read about God's portion, which we just simply get a foretaste for now. Let's pray together. God, thanks for getting us together tonight to think about, to ponder, to study, to kind of prime the pump for us looking through your word for every illustrative analogy that is designed to bear fruit in our minds and give us a sense of the character, the activity, even the commitment of God toward us. You are a great God, a shepherd to us, a rock, light, our portion, and many other things. But those, for starters, are good, they're rich, they help us to see how we should lean on you, rely on you, trust in you, hope in you. And God, I pray that we would do better at that. I pray that we would be much, much more attuned and focused at making sure our heart is at rest in you not fearing anything here on earth, but rejoicing that our life, as Paul said, is, is buried and hidden with God and Christ. So God, give us that kind of eternal perspective. May the light of your word and the wisdom of your, of your son, may it abide in our hearts and expel the darkness. And God, for those that are just uh, so enamored with the... Uh, the world and its desires that are passing away, I pray, God, you'd free us from that. Let our hearts cry out, as we so often say, as we study you, because you are soon and promised to dwell among us. Let us cry out for that future day when from the throne will come our sustenance, that river of, of life down the street in the city that is lined with trees that heal us and sustain us and nourish us, all because the dwelling of God is among men. God, I know a lot of us are probably where the psalmists were when they wrote a lot of these psalms in the midst of pain or trial or fear-inducing situations and circumstances, but I pray as we seek to peel back the layers of the richness of these analogies that you would bring us proper perspective and comfort and strength and courage to walk with you even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. So God, thanks for this time. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the richness of it, the complexity of it. Thanks for the beauty of the poetry and the lyrics of the Psalter. It's a good thing for us to wade around in in our minds for an hour. 
Dismiss us now, God, with your uh, protection and your provision and your, your word marinating and cogitating in our minds. May it bring glory to you as we open our mouths and reflect the truths that we learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.